Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. I'm Jenny Jagman. I'm Eva Garmendia. And I'm Po Ching Tang. Welcome to this month's episode of the AMR Studio. This month, we have the pleasure of featuring an interview that Eva did with Dr. Teresa Thardan on the 19th of October, and she's an associate senior lecturer at the UAC. Uh, she's actually giving a seminar talk on November 6th, so look forward to that as well. But we had the chance to get to speak to her beforehand, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Hey, everyone. We are so happy to have with us today Teresa Zardan Gomez de la Torre. She is another of the associate senior lecturers that we have recruited recently at the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. And she's bringing to the center a very different topic that we had not talked about before, which is bringing more the technological side of things into uh, antibiotic resistance. I don't want to say any more. I want you, uh, Teresa, to tell us what you're doing. So can you please introduce yourself to our audience and tell us what you are doing, what you're working with now. Yeah, sure. So my name is Teresa. And as you said, I'm one of the three associate senior lecturers that are funded uh, by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. And I'm part of the science and technology. And my home department is the Department of Material Science and Engineering at the Uppsala University. And my project is about diagnostics and mixing it together with nanotechnology. So what I've basically do is to develop a diagnostic tool based on magnetic nanoparticles. That's the very short version. Yeah, exactly. When you started working on research, were you already involved in questions related with antibiotics and resistance or did you move from some other field into it? Well, I have been working with diagnostics for a very long time, for maybe 10 to 11 years now. I did my PhD mm -hmm. in diagnostics, also diagnostics with uh, magnetic nanoparticles and also during my time as a researcher. And then I came across to this call that the center had. So that's how I came across this field of resistance. So I just thought when I saw this call that it would be a great opportunity for me to contribute to the field, to find a one solution to this global health problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What kind of diagnostics were you working with before? I have worked with different applications. Uh, I have worked with sonotic diseases, it's diseases mm -hmm. that are transferred from animals to humans. And mm -hmm. uh, I have also worked with influenza, but mainly the focus has been in developing the method mm -hmm. to increase the sensitivity, to look at, look at the specificity, making it simpler and so on. So can you explain to us a little bit more in detail, but mm -hmm. in simple way, what is your diagnostic about? What is, how does your diagnostic text work that is different from other diagnostic texts that are out there? already? The principle of this diagnostic method is that we use magnetic particles, nanoparticles. So it's very, very small, I would say magnets, mm -hmm. that bind specifically to DNA sequences that come from pathogens. It could be from bacteria, but also from viruses. Maybe you can explain for our audience, what is a nanomaterial? <laughs> well, a nanomaterial is a material that is between one and a hundred nanometers. The difference between a nanomaterial and a bulk material is that when you come into the nanoscale, the properties of the material will change. And it is these properties that we use within nanotechnology. But is it, is it any material can become a nanomaterial? Does any material have different properties when it is looked at the nanoscale? Yes. 
Okay. That's the thing with nanotechnologies that the properties changes when you get it get it into the nanoscape. And what is or what properties are you using of these nanomaterials when it comes to your diagnostic test? Well, the particles that I'm using are magnetic, so they rotate in an oscillating magnetic field. So when these particles bind to the DNA, the rotation of the particles will change. It's the rotation of the particles we look at and see if it's a positive sample or a negative sample. Ah, that's very cool. That's very yeah. interesting. So when the particles bind to the big DNA, they will not be able to rotate as fast as they will do it when if they are free, if there are no uh -huh. DNA on the surface. So it's the change of the rotation we look at. And you are able to actually see the rotation of these particles? Yeah, the change. How do you measure the rotation? Yeah, we look at something that is called the, <laughs> the imaginary part of the complex susceptibility. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a mouthful, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Yeah, so, so we can see, um, so the particles will rotate in an oscillating field and we will get a peak uh, when the particles will relax. And if they bind to a bigger molecule, or for instance, a big DNA molecule, this peak will change in frequency to lower frequency. So it's the change we look at. Mm -hmm. yeah. Basically, they yeah. just like, they dance differently when exactly. they... Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's slower. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, the dance lower. Okay, yeah. that's a, it's a very visual way to see it. I, exactly. I can imagine now the particles. Oh, now the DNA is here. We slow yeah, down. And... Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's very that's very interesting. Mm -hmm. Nice, very 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 cool work that you guys are doing. Definitely. Thank you. And what we want to do is to develop a simple diagnostic tool, a cheap diagnostic tool that could be used in developing countries where there is a lot of people that doesn't afford to take these expensive tests. Mm -hmm. So that's our vision. Mm -hmm. So I can think like, for example, this diagnostic test, one is actually made to be in the market. It would be something that doesn't really need a lot of reagents or materials or a lot of electricity or things like that. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So we are actually working right now with a sub-project where we are able to detect uh, these DNA sequences by the naked eye, actually. So it would mean that oh. we, yeah. So it's very exciting. It's a very exciting project where we just have our DNA, make them like a big clumps of DNA and add our magnetic particles. So we see like a, a visible clumps of DNA. Mm -hmm. In that case, we would, wouldn't need an instrumentation. Oh, make that's it, very interesting. Yeah. Why do you guys need to use magnetic particles or nanoparticles in this case for this type of test? Well, originally we used magnetic nanoparticles because it was a very easy and cheap way to see if we had DNA present in our sample. But just by looking on how the, the magnetic uh, properties of the particle change when it binds to this DNA. So it was a very like easy way and cheap way because magnetic particles are for instance, more stable than fluorescence. Fluorescent group, they are usually used in detection, but they are not stable mm -hmm. over time. They are very, they're a bit complicated to use. And mm -hmm. magnetic particles are more stable. They are very easily to use. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Are they already out there diagnostics that are based on this technology for other diseases or for other kind of problems? No, there are no commercial uh, product yet. Uh, there is a lot of in research, mm -hmm. hopefully in the future. So, yeah, so it's yeah. something like super new, super uh, 
yeah, it's kind quite... of being on development right now. Yeah, it has been uh, since the 1990s. Yeah, so that's in science terms pretty recently. Yeah, <laughs> yes. it's very recently. Yeah, exactly. Can you tell us a little bit of what have you personally faced as most challenging developing this kind of project? Well, it is a very multidisciplinary project. Uh, there is a lot of physicists that are working. I'm a chemist and there's a lot of biologists. So it has been challenging, like in the beginning, try to like find a common language to talk. Even if we're working with the same thing, we're talking different languages. Mm -hmm. So that has been very challenging in the beginning. I mean, yeah, for me, just what is an enzyme? Uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, just those simple things, just to like learn the physics behind the magnetic particles, learning a lot of this biology. So that has been a lot of challenge for me. This is very interesting that you bring this up uh, mm. here because, I mean, you know that one of the goals of the center is to be able to create or foster this more mm. multi-interdisciplinarity vision on, on, yeah. this, on the solutions to AMR mm. and that you are actually working with creating a diagnostic test. Of course, it's going to have a huge biological component because the mm. bacteria are alive and you want to test for this, yeah. but bringing in this like nanoparticles, how the particles change the properties depending if the sample is positive or negative. Mm. That's all based on physics, as you say, yeah. and the role of chemistry there, I guess, is also... Can you tell us maybe what part of the chemistry is this diagnostic is based on? Well, it's basically that we have to bind the pro-molecule, the molecule that binds to the, these DNA molecules, to the particles. So you need chemistry for that. You need mm -hmm. different type of chemistries to bind these molecules to the surface of the particles. Mm -hmm. And it's not very easy all the time, but yeah, so it's there where you need the chemistry, actually. I can see how the different disciplines come in together. Sounds really nice. You have not been on the AMR field for a really long time. You just no. basically came in from your background on diagnostics and yeah. nanoparticles and then applying now to AMR. So you have a fresh vision into the issue. So far, you are, of course, working in a cutting edge point that we need more diagnostics because if we want to use less antibiotics, we need to have better diagnostics and quicker diagnostics or exactly. more, faster diagnostics. But what do you think it's also missing in this area? I'm sure there are many gaps that need to be filled in, but something that I've noticed that there is a lot of people, I mean, it could be researchers from other disciplines and uh, common people that doesn't know the complicity of this problem of AMR. I get the sense that many people just think, oh, just, just synthesize new antibiotics and that will solve everything. So mm -hmm. I, need, I think we as a researcher need to like communicate more maybe. I think, mm -hmm. like to discuss more, tell people that that is a very, very complex question that uh, needs a lot of solutions, not just making new antibiotics or just making better diagnostic tools or there are several issues that need to be addressed. That everything to... has to be put together. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I feel that there is a lack of, I don't know, the people that doesn't know that that yeah. doesn't work in this field. Yeah, I, I guess... And that, this is important in a sense because, one it or not, a lot of the people that decide where the money goes to mm. are not really people that work directly in this area. So yeah. I, I also feel like that a little bit, maybe that, you know, when there's money out there, it's like, oh, we need to put a lot of money making new antibiotics. Mm. Uh, but 
then we kind of miss the part that maybe we do need money to train people in hospitals to use the antibiotics in a better way, or we need to put money so we can teach people about this and this and this concept, not only, you know, and I understand that uh, perhaps some things require more money than others, you know, like Mm. developing a new diagnostic tool. It's not just the research you're doing now, as you say, like this started in the 90s and nothing is still in the the market because it takes a lot of resources and it takes a lot of time and you have to test the things in a many rigorous way. And that would equal more money, right? But maybe we should somehow be able to communicate, as you say, to the people that choose where the money goes, that is important to also put money in other things. Exactly. And I have to confess, I was one of them. I, I, I thought that just make new antibiotics, how difficult can it be? <laughs> so, but I've, I've learned a lot this year. So yeah, I'm, and I still need to learn more, of course. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Maybe, I don't know how we could embed more the people into it and make it more relevant for everybody to yeah. understand. Yeah, I don't know. I don't have any solution for that, but yeah, I think... I mean, I'm trying to do it when, when I talk to people, try to like inform them, tell them how, how it is. That's the only thing I can do. But I think that we all need to contribute to that. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's a very nice point. Yeah. Like you said, one of the challenging things, of course, is to communicate and be able to talk to people from other disciplines, even though those people are already also working in the AMR field. So it's not like it's people from another discipline that yeah. on top of everything, they don't know about AMR. Um, I would like to know if you have seen some points where your perspective on AMR and the AMR problem as a, as a researcher on diagnostics coincide or it's opposing some of the views that someone else working in the topic might have like someone that sees it from the biological point of view on the infection point of view or I can see how you working more on the diagnostics the aspects of AMR that you deal with every day might be different from the aspects of AMR than someone in the clinics might work with. What I felt is that we that work within diagnostics, we like to try these new cool ideas to detect new bacteria. But I know when I've talked to people in the clinics, for instance, that they are not so eager to take in this diagnostic tool very easily because they work with the tools that are in the clinics and they're not so very prone to change. Mm -hmm. They have been working with this for several years and I mean people doesn't want to change they're working the way Mm -hmm. they always are doing so I think that would be a problem or a difficulty uh, for us that are working with diagnostic tool to implement these tools in the the hospital for instance. Have you maybe notice what what do you think would be the incentives for people working in diagnostics that they can use in order to make the people in the hospital understand that they should be trying new diagnostics that's a very complex question if it's complicated and difficult to use people will not use it i mean it has to be a new tool that it's very easy that's competing with other tools that is better than other tools maybe then people will start using it Mm -hmm. i'm curious to know what are the harder parts that you have come across while developing the this test of this new way of looking at the diagnostics? When I started this project, I thought it would be easy to find an application. And then I, I realized that uh, this AMR field is very big and complex. And uh, we have thought a lot about what kind of application we want to like focus on. Mm-hmm. Because uh, resistant bacteria 
uh, everywhere. There are different kinds of resistant bacteria. So in which way we want to tackle this problem has been a bit problematic. For instance, should we do a tool that only that can dif differentiate between a virus and a bacteria? Should we focus on that? Or should we focus on a specific, like, or should we focus on urinary tract infections or on sepsis? Or, yeah, we have realized that it's a huge, huge area and it has been difficult. And we haven't decided yet, actually, where to focus. So it has mm -hmm. been a lot of work on developing the method. But now it has come to a time to actually decide maybe how we can help. Yeah. In which area maybe there is uh, more need for it. Exactly. Well. Yeah, exactly. So we need to do a lot of research on that. Is your diagnostic test sensitive enough or focused enough that you could potentially detect resistance? Or is it more just the presence of the infection itself? Yeah, and that's also something that we need to evaluate. We don't know that yet, actually. Yeah, so you're looking into if it could also be exactly. specifically for resistance. Or... Exactly. That's pretty so, cool. Yeah, so there's a lot of research right now to how we can help in this area. I find it very uh, interesting and of course needed that you are focusing on the simplicity of the test and mm. that it should be easy enough and cheap enough so it can be used also in developing countries where there is mm. not access to perhaps the same type of resources that we have in other places. Yeah. Um, how are you approaching that part of the research? Are you in contact with uh, researchers in developing countries? Are you looking into what are the main needs? How do you go about that? We haven't come that far yet, but it's definitely something that we want to do. I'm from Bolivia originally, mm -hmm. so I know how how easily people get antibiotics there and they don't test. People doesn't have money enough to take tests over there. So, mm -hmm. yeah, so that's one of the reasons I wanted to make a test that it could be available for everybody that don't have resources mm -hmm. to take these expensive tests. But we mm -hmm. haven't, no, we haven't uh, have any contact with researchers in other countries yet. But it's definitely something that we want to do. I mean, uh, uh, we the podcast is heard in really many places around the world. Oh, so okay. I would suggest that maybe if there is anybody listening to us right now that is working in a you know in a setting where diagnostics that require a lot of resources are not possible, and they are working with this, maybe they could contact you to yeah. build a collaboration or something of the like, or at least to get to know a little bit more about the work that you're doing and the possible applications of such an easy test whenever it might come, you know, things are yeah. slow, of course. Yeah. I encourage you guys, of course, to write to Teresa if, if anything comes to your mind while listening to this That interview. would be that would... great, yeah. Looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah, that would be really yeah. cool. Yeah. So another thing that we like to ask people that come to our podcast, especially because we have people of so many different disciplines and you being a chemist and a chemist coming into AMR now, but don't focus so much on the AMR part. We like to know what things are generally misunderstood about your field of work or mm. as a chemist or about the work you have done before. What things do you feel like are not really coming across in the right way to either the public mm. or other of your colleagues? Well, when talking about diagnostics, I don't feel that I'm getting misunderstood a lot because it's a it's a very non-controversial area. 
quite easy to understand. And so I don't feel that I get misunderstood. If, if I tell people that I work within nanotechnology, I can feel that people like, oh my God, nanomaterials are so dangerous. Uh, they're toxic. And of course there are nanomaterials that are toxic and, and dangerous, but not all materials are like that. So I, yeah, so I need to explain that not all nanomaterials are dangerous and especially not the ones that I'm working with. So yeah. So that's I'm very curious yeah. what kind of what kind of materials do people have in mind when you're talking about nanoparticles that might be dangerous or yeah it's I think it's mainly the nanoparticles that are in the in sunscreens ah uh, okay yeah I think it's those one or I know it's those one that people think that you can get cancer from and so on but nanomaterials that I'm using is totally different so not like that yeah <laughs> well Teresa it was really interesting to listen to to you and to learn about your project this top of the line new kind of diagnostic work that you are doing before we wrap up the interview I would like to know if there is anything you would like to to tell our audience and to tell our listeners about the work that you're doing or the work that you're going to do in the future well as we talked before uh, we are planning to well, we want to collaborate mm -hmm. with other people especially that work in developing country maybe and in other countries so if somebody's interested in collaborating with us it would be very nice mm -hmm. and yeah just contact me and also just want to like give you credit for this podcast I think it's a very good initiative and uh, yeah I have listened to several uh, episodes and I think it's very good yeah we we try to you know that what you mentioned that more people yeah. can get to know um also the personal stories i think is very yeah. interesting you know the motivations of everyone to to come into the field and to to kind of as you said like give to the field the put a little bit of what they already work on and they know yeah. into the field and try to find these edges and these new ways of looking at the problem so you are a beautiful example right you were working with nanoparticles uh, with other diagnostics and then you see an edge it's like oh maybe this can also be used mm. for infections and yeah. possible resistant bacteria and it has the power of being simple easy potentially very cheap and mm. this is something that is needed so it's I think it's very nice that people like you that kind of try to see how to get into it and to to contribute yeah yeah. Thank you so much for being with us, Teresa, making some time in this midst, midst of uh, COVID-19, yeah. a lot of online meetings. And yeah, yeah. thank you for having me. I hope that all of you enjoy the interview and I will see you in the commentary with Jenny. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Welcome back, guys. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed this interview about a topic we have not talked about before. First of all, I would like to ask you, Jenny, what did you think about Teresa's work and Teresa's interview? I thought, first of all, it was really nice to hear like the details about something that's going on. I mean, we tend to talk a lot about kind of more theoretical stuff or concepts and things like that, but it was really nice to hear something that's really in the work, something that somebody is really working on, more details about a project. And I really realized how little I knew about nanoparticles and it was a, nice to learn more about it. <laughs> I did not understand how complicated it was to work with these things. I thought it was just, oh, it's just tiny versions of something bigger. There's no difference. Yeah, I guess it's a, I knew just a little bit about what nano 
particles were, but uh, what I had really understood talking with her is that uh, the important thing about nanoparticles is that, yeah, of course you can have a material can be in a small piece or it can be in a big piece, but it's when you go into this nano universe of the material yeah. that things don't really work like they will work in the micro scale or the milli scale which is what yeah. we can see with the naked eye of course i had really so, not understood that and it was really it was nice to get like an understanding of the, com the complexity of this work the, a better respect for it to be honest i thought i always thought nano was kind of like just this buzzword <laughs> yeah so, no i guess like this is this is a bit like what uh, she said in the end that when she talks about nanoparticles everyone thinks about you know sunscreen because that's what mm -hmm. they hear so it's like buzzword like nanoparticles in the in the sunscreen are toxic yeah. but it is much more than that obviously and there's a lot of science going on when mm -hmm. it comes to using nanoparticles for a lot of applications yeah and this is a really cool application i thought i mean it sounds yeah. incredibly interesting and in that it's so simple to use and you could potentially use it without any extra analysis software anything like that just basically visualizing Mm -hmm. And also that is, uh, I, as I understood, it, very stable, much more stable than other kind of probes and other kind yeah. of materials that can be used or are being used for diagnostics. Mm -hmm. um, that I, I found it super useful, right? If it's, yeah. And also, yeah, the fact that yeah, nanoscience is like, as you said, like this like mysterious kind of world. And then mm -hmm. it can potentially give us a diagnostic tool that can be used with the naked eye and it would be a small, cheap, stable, reliable technique that can just be used by anyone is uh, super exciting to think about. Yeah, this was a really cool example of somebody like having skills in the field. I mean, there's like this technology that already kind of exists. It's applied to many different fields and then bringing it to the AMR issue, if we should call it that, and saying like, okay, this is what I've got. How can we apply it to this field? What can we do to improve? What can we do to help? And I thought it was a really cool example of people bringing what their skills to the table. It's super brave as well you know think about yeah. it like you've been like doing your phd and you are in your science cocoon which is like where we are and then yeah. it's like well we have this technique it works we're studying it in, for other kind of diagnostics is there a possibility that we can actually also use it for this which is very needed Mm -hmm. And it's brave to just go into mm -hmm. it because, as she said, there is a lot of stuff that she might not have been aware of or all these other sides of the complexity of making an, a diagnostic tool in the field of infections, bacterial mm -hmm. infections and potential resistance. You know, like she mentioned, yes, we have the possibility of making a diagnostic tool, but where is most useful that we use this diagnostic tool, right? And I really like that. I mean, she talks about her own personal side of it that she understands why this needs to be cheap and reliable and available for a lot of people but I really mm -hmm. respect that they're also reaching out for collaboration and absolutely if anybody can can help mm, yeah. give them recommendations on maybe what's more necessary do we need to know if it's a bacteria or a virus do we need to be able to identify if there are specific resistance genes what's most helpful what will help you most in the clinic what will give you the most information this is, mm -hmm. the, this is like the ideal thing of, okay, we have this technology, we haven't exactly zoned it on how we're going to use it. This is that step where you want the clinicians to be able to say, okay, this is what we need. This is what will help us the most. Because a lot of the times diagnostic tools are kind of made, not without the input of clinicians, but they're kind of like the technology is based around a certain, it can answer a certain question. And that might not be the question that you need answered. I think we talk with Olaf about this, right? That he yeah. studies the innovation within diagnostics. And it's like that sometimes, you know, the scientists are making these like top of the line 
technique and then when they come and to try to implement it, it's like well maybe this is not the best use yeah. that we would want for it or something like, like are that. you so, pushing the technology on the clinicians or are they asking for it is it getting pulled into the clinic it fits really well that we have Teresa here right all of talking about this uh, yeah it's a really nice concept. combination yeah uh, I really like it but yeah if anybody has anything please reach out because I think that's just great that they're asking for information for input that's that's wonderful Yes, so with this, we moved on to the news section and see what's uh, going up this past month on the AMR field. See you yep. there. Welcome to the AMR Studio News. Today we are going to talk about a couple of different things that we normally do. We are not going to cover any particular research study or paper published. But we're going to talk about a couple of things that are very on point for the time we're living through and that we we deem interesting to talk about and for you guys to know about them. If you are not in a vacuum, no, it's a politics times in the US. Elections are coming up and there's a lot of talk about, you know, the presidential elections. But we also have a positive news when it comes to AMR and politics, in particular in the US. We know that we, a lot of you are in other countries that is not in the US, but this is like a beautiful example of how politics and AMR can have good news as well. So Jenny, can you tell us what's going on in the US with uh, AMR and politics? Yeah, so uh, I'm a half, half American myself and a US citizen, so I understand the mess of the elections right now and trying to vote from abroad. But this is something, if you are currently living in the US, this is incredibly important. So please, please reach out to your senators about this. But it's uh, two senators, it's a bipartisan initiative, uh, one Republican, one Democratic senator, that have introduced something called the Pasteur Act, which stands for the Pioneering Antimicrobial Subscriptions to End Upsurging Resistance Act. Wow. Um, I know, it's terrible. <laughs> they just wanted to write Pastor. They should have just written yeah. Pastor. This was introduced at the end of September. And like I said, it's uh, Senator Bennett and Senator Young. So it's bipartisan. That's totally rare, I feel like, in the US right now to hear something positive and over the lines with, regarding the party politics. But this is, I mean, credit to these senators that they're working together on this. This is incredibly important. And I think it's very well written personally. So it's basically, it's a pull award for creating new antimicrobials or specifically antibiotics. This is actually not antimicrobials. It's only for antibiotics. Antifungals are not included, unfortunately, but it's also delinked from sales. So it's one of these subscription models that we've talked about, like the kind of Netflix subscription. You're paying for the ability to get this antibiotic when you need it and not for how much you're using. So what they're basically saying is these companies that are creating an antibiotic through the process of getting the antibiotic approved, they can, number one, get the basically kind of a contract, a promise contract for the subscription. So you can understand how much money the contract would be worth before the antibiotic reaches the market, which can help kind of push it through. They can get funding and what they need to get through to the market. But it also includes some elements of antimicrobial stewardship. So they're also incentivized to use this properly to provide resistance data, to work on all these sort of things. Uh, providers and hospitals are incentivized to report how they're using it and work with professional networks to work on I mean, how these should be used in clinic if we're doing standardized situations and things like that. And basically what this leads to is that the government is paying for these subscriptions and then 
people that are covered through government insurance in the US, so Medicare, Medicaid, that sort of thing, VA, that all of that, they can then get these antibiotics for free when they're actually needed. So the government's not paying for them when they're being used, they're being paid like to have the ability to use them. And all this, like how much this description is worth is based on certain properties of the antibiotic, if, what it targets. I mean, we want, you know, as we've said before, we want new mechanisms of action. We want things targeting priority pathogens. It's important how it's administrated, what, how it reaches certain parts of the body that are hard to create drugs that can reach certain parts of the body. Um, but yeah, in general, it's a really cool initiative. I'm just so surprised that this is coming at this moment in the US as a bipartisan thing. So I'm a little bit fangirling about this, but it's really great. And on top of that, uh, the Pew Trust has a form that you can fill out and we'll leave a link to it. So if you are currently a U.S. citizen living in the U.S., unfortunately, you can't really fill it out if you're not living in the U.S. You need a U.S. address and phone number, but you can fill it out and send information to your senator that you support this bill, that you think they should support it as well. And I think it's very important that you do if you can. Of course, there are issues with every single bill, but this is a pretty well-written one from what I can understand, and it's been supported by some heavy names. It's, uh, among other things, a lot of the information that I've said here, I've read through Dr. Kevin Utterson and uh, Dr. John Rex. So these are people that know what they're talking about that are very involved in the issue and are very supportive of this. So please take the time to read through it and please contact your senator because we really want this to work. And this is similar to things that are going on in the UK. They have a pilot for a subscription or antimicrobial subscription and that sort of thing. But the more bigger countries that do this, the more push we get, we see what works, we see what doesn't work, and then other countries can adapt their own programs. And it's really important that we show that this is something that can happen. This is great news. It was yes. very interesting to listen to I'm super to happy. You, so, yes. <laughs> I have already pushed my family members that in the US to sign this, so I'm really excited. Thank you for taking the time of reading through it and presenting for us, of course. Also, uh, we can leave a link to the one page information about the bill. Mm -hmm. It's easier to read than the whole thing, trust me. <laughs> <laughs> we will. We will. Guys, uh, take a look at it. And also, if you are, you know, politicians or members of policy parties in other countries, you can always check out the bill, get some inspiration, how things might be able to be done. And we will get there. And yeah. I am sure we will get to change how the system works uh, step by step. So now that I've talked a lot about U.S. politics, uh, Ava, what else do we want to talk about this this month? So we wanted to talk about another piece of really nice information and tips we got actually from your Rex. So whoever it's on his newsletter probably knows maybe a, a bit about this, is that uh, Nature Journal has published an Outlook series on AMR. These are 10 pieces, independent pieces, on different topics that have to do with antimicrobial resistance. And put together is actually a pretty good overview of the current status of different aspects of the AMR problem. Uh, we're going to leave a link to the newsletter of John Rex that especially talks about this and has the links of all of them. Unfortunately, Nature didn't make a dedicated page just for them is part of all the outlooks out there and they publish a lot they publish constantly and they have like thousands of them we are not going to leave the link to that but we will leave the link to the newsletter in john rex's page um, but basically it's there are short concise papers that dwell on different topics that we are constantly talking about here for example antimicrobial resistance as a whole why big pharma has abandoned antibiotics, uh, the art of infection prevention, how researchers are revamping antimicrobial drugs, 
what does need to change in drug discovery. Um, this was, I think, a very interesting one. It's like looking into how China has been able to reduce by 57% the use of antibiotic in agriculture between 2014 and 2018. That's very interesting to know how such a big country like China has pulled off something like that. Uh, there's hope there for many other places in the world as well, if we learn from such examples. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, some other mentioned in aquaculture and topics like that. So I think it's a very good resource to have. and It's very useful to have it there when someone comes into this field, you know, like we did a couple of years back, like you want yeah. to be updated, what is out there, what is the important topics that we should be thinking about, talking about among each other, talking to other people. This is a very good resource to use. We hope that you guys find it useful as well. Both as like an introduction to the field and a refresher to remind yourself of what's going on, what's important. And last but not least, uh, we wanted to bring up to all of you that uh, this year there is a slight change in our annual AMR campaign. Let's call it. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know that um, for many years in November, we have what has been called the World Antibiotic Awareness Week. It's a campaign led by the WHO, and WHO has decided that from this year onwards, there are two changes. One is that it's going to be called World Antimicrobial Awareness Week. You know, to include that it's not just antibiotics, antimicrobials are more than that, and we should be also thinking about, you know, antifungals, yeah. antivirals all those sort of things. And also they have decided that every year, I believe, is going to be from November 18th. So it's not going to be movable every year. Like before, it was a different week in November. From now on, it's going to be always starting on November 18th. For this year, we are preparing a special episode as well. You know, you guys, we, we launched it in the Antibiotic Awareness Week back in 2018. 2019, we also made a special series on communication of AMR. And this year, we will bring to you a special episode regarding antibiotic use and human behavior, because in Uppsala, we are going to have a big, big event hosted uh, next year in March, which is a health summit, and it will deal with AMR and behavior change. So we thought it was very fitting to, you know, give a shout out to the summit that's going to happen, but also talk about the problem of behavioral change within AMR because, you know, this doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter how many antibiotics we bring, how many diagnostic tools. If there is not an ultimate change in how we use these things, we are not going to get anywhere. So the concept of behavioral change, it's high there in the priority of things to think about when we talk about AMR. So that's the topic we're going to talk about it and going to be aired on the morning of November 18th. So stay tuned and know that there's going to be one more episode before the regular episode of the month of December. And with that, thank you for this month. See you next time. (laughs) Bye. Bye. For more information about the Uppsala Antibiotic Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us in Twitter. Our handle is UAC underscore UU. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, and Po Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nis for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm.